Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Just want to say I'm really pleased to welcome all of you to this uh, inaugural event It's of, a, of a new speaking series here at NYU Abu Dhabi, um, known as Writing the World. Over the coming years, I hope we'll be bringing internationally acclaimed journalists and authors like Michael Pollan to NYU AD to give a public talk and to share with students and faculty and the larger UAE community their experiences and expertise. But before we start, I need to thank a number of people who you know, made this happen. Vice Chancellor Al Bloom and Fabio Piano, who couldn't be here tonight, but all the folks at the NYU AD Institute and my colleagues in the Literature and Creative Writing Program in the Arts and Humanities Division, our Dean Robert Young, our program head Deborah Williams, and a really special thanks to uh, Associate Dean Martin Klimke, who when I first spoke about making this series happen, immediately sat down with a notepad and helped me pound out what this thing might look at look like when, when it finally happened. I have to tell you, I can't possibly think of a better person for the inaugural speaker to this event than my friend, Michael Pollan. We've known each other for so many years now, but for over 25 years, Michael has been writing award-winning books and feature articles about, as he phrases it, the places where nature, culture, and culture intersect on our plates, in our farms and gardens, and in the built environment. He's authored no less than five New York Times bestsellers. You were nominated for the National Books Critics Circle Award, and he was named in 2010 to Time Magazine's list of the 100 most influential people and was selected by Newsweek in 2009 as one of the world's top 10 new thought leaders. What is that exactly? <laughs> Whatever it is, you're one of them. I first met Michael uh, back in 1991, he was the executive editor of Harper's Magazine at the time, and I was writing a kind of controversial essay for Harper's and really, really having trouble, like, meaning what I was saying and committing myself to the premise of the, of, of the essay's argument. So at one point, my immediate editor said, I'm giving this to Michael Pollan. And I said, like, who's this Pollan guy? And all I know is that a few days later, I get the pages back from Michael and I look at page one, two, three, four, and there's no comments. I'm going, this guy loves me. And then on page five, it's like four words, just four words at the very top of the page, gnarled with impatience. And they said, stop taking it back. <laughs> and it was one of the most instructive like bits of advice I've ever gotten from an editor. Stop being a chicken and just commit yourself to what the hell it is you're writing. Ever since the publication that same year of Michael's first book, Second Nature, it's a stirring philosophical meditation on our often fraught relationship with the natural world. We've all been a lot better off for the fact that Michael has never taken anything back. He says, it may be my nature, in the introduction to that head-turning work, it may be my nature to complicate matters unduly, to search for large meanings in small things, but it did seem to me that there was 
a lot more going on in the garden than I expected to find. He may as well have been speaking of the world at large. Wherever Michael directs his gaze, steak on a plate, an apple, a tulip, a potato, a suburban lawn, he finds a lot more going on than any of us would ever, ever expect. And to me, there's a little boy, as I said to Michael, there's a little boy behind his very measured and elegant prose. That kid is always going, what's the story of that? And Michael just brings that. He gives you back the great experience of discovery in his writing, and that's a very great thing for a writer to do, so that we all go along with his journey. And whether he's explaining the mystery, as he did in Cooked, and it's in Netflix, you know, how does a lump of dough and water only become life-sustaining when air gets into it? You know, whether he's explaining that or that amazing moment he had when he was in his garden, realizing that the plants he's been working are in fact working him, okay? That they're, you know, using Michael <laughs> for their purposes. It was, and that's in the botany of desire. And it's a radical thought. The thing is, is he's always finding the larger meanings behind everyday appearances. His writing about food is by now so well known that he's like this guy over our shoulder, like when we're eating, like, what is this and where did it come from? Would Pollen, <laughs> would Pollen approve of this? You know? but, but the fact of the matter is, is that beyond educating us about the natural history of dinner or profiling the inner bacteria that populate and power our daily lives or, whether, or blowing our minds about the brains, quote unquote, of plants, Michael's work does something I think really, really even more radical. It knocks us humans off of our high horse by continually exposing and exploring our intricate bonds with the complex biological world. And I think in the Anthropocene, this, this epoch, the first one to be named, not after a geological phenomena, but of, after us, there's really no greater role that a, a, a writer can perform. So with great pleasure, I welcome Michael. Thank you, Charles, for that generous and very thoughtful introduction. I really appreciate it. And thanks to everybody here. I've had such a wonderful week being among you and been so impressed with the program and the students. And I told uh, Charles and some other people that, uh, you know, I had some of the hardest questions I've ever faced as a writer in your midst. So that was great. What I want to talk about tonight is a writer's education, my own path that I took as a writer. And I've conceived this talk particularly with the undergraduates, the students in mind. And I'm imagining in my head specifically an undergraduate thinking of majoring in the humanities, but who is wondering or perhaps being asked by her parents, what good is that? I also hope to answer a question I often hear about my current project, which is an exploration of the history and science of psychedelic consciousness. How in the world do you get from writing about food to psilocybin and LSD? So I hope we can get from the, the, the first image to that second image by the end of the talk. And, but that question will make a lot more sense, I think, when you, when, when you understand how in the world I ever got to food, which was also not in my plan. I think something that um, young people seldom appreciate enough when they see those of us who've, you know, have their careers and are known for certain things, 
that it was, there wasn't always a plan. There's a lot of serendipity and wrong turns and accidents along the way. So I'll share some of those too. The subtitle of my first two books both contain the word education, but it could just as easily have been in the subtitle of all my books, which are foremost, and, and Charles alluded to this, narratives of learning or really detective stories. I almost always write as a naive which might be one of the reasons I'm moving on right now from food. I, I know too much, and I don't like writing as an expert. And so, and I want to share a few takeaways, writing lessons. And so that's the first writing lesson that, that I will impart to you, which is that readers would rather come on a journey with you than listen to a lecture uh, that you deliver at the end of that journey as an expert. So let's take a little stroll on this path I've been on for 25 years. Along the way, I'm going to read some passages, sort of snapshots along the way to give you the taste of some of these books. And as we go, I'll share a little bit about what the journey has taught me about writing, but also about our engagement with nature, uh, food and agriculture, and altered states of consciousness. So my whole project as a writer begins in the garden, but the ground for it was prepared somewhere else, was prepared in the library. And I had this very interesting experience of realizing as I started my writing career that there were a couple books I read as an undergraduate and in graduate school that completely set me on my course, but I had no idea at the time. And more, to be more precise, my project really begins when I discovered that some of the books I treasured in college failed me miserably when I found myself up against some of the messier realities of trying to grow a little food in my garden. And this is my garden in Northwest Connecticut, where I lived for many years. I no longer live there, but I still own it and spend time there. And this is the vegetable garden behind this fence. Although, as, you'll, as you'll, you're about to hear, uh, there wasn't always a fence. So when I'm speaking of these writers that had such an influence, I'm speaking specifically of Henry David Thoreau and Walden, as well as Emerson's essays. And that whole wonderful, but I think ultimately problematic tradition of American nature writing with its exaltation of untouched nature. Thoreau was and is a hero of mine, but he was not a very good or determined gardener. And his mentor, Ralph Waldo Emerson, really wasn't much better. And a few years after leaving school, my head crammed with their ideas, these beautiful ideas about nature. I set out planting a garden one April and literally within hours ran into problems. I double dug the, the, the soil. It was, it's Connecticut, New England soil, very rocky. But I dug down like 18 inches, two feet, turned it over, made these beautiful beds and uh, went to the garden center and I bought these little seedlings of cabbages and broccoli. It was kind of early in April. Planted them and was very proud of my handiwork. And the very next morning I, I went out to check on them and they'd been mowed down, completely mowed down. They were each just a little stub. Well, I'll tell you in a second what happened. So let me tell you a little about the ideas though that I had in my head that would allow me to plant a garden without erecting a fence. Because Thoreau thought fences were very old world and kind of bespoke an alienation from nature. And Emerson on weeds. Emerson said uh, a weed was simply a plant whose virtues have not yet been discovered. A very, <laughs> a very generous idea and implying that the, the, the category weed is a defect of our, of our perception. Uh, that's actually wrong. 
<laughs> no, but botanically it's wrong. Weeds are a particular kind of plant that has evolved to exploit the openings we give it. If there were no humans, there would be no weeds. Um, they need agriculture to survive. They need gardens to survive. And then you've got Henry David Thoreau, who when he went to Walden in his great experiment in um, self-determination and, and uh, autonomy, planted a bean field. He has to support himself for these two years or, or try to. So as a cash crop, he planted beans, a lot of beans. Like he, he claimed it was two miles or something, a bean field. I don't think it was quite that much. But he hated weeding it because he said it forced him to make invidious distinctions between one kind of plant and another. And he couldn't, you know, he was such a Democrat of nature that he couldn't get his head around the idea that his beans uh, had any more right to their rows than the weeds growing up between them. He also, uh, and, he, and he struggles with this in that chapter, he talks about whether he had any more right to the harvest than the birds that were trying to eat his beans. And he decides, no, he doesn't. And this leads to his self-exile from the garden. He actually gives up on, on growing beans. And he concludes he would rather live hard by the most dismal swamp than the most beautiful garden. Now, this is, I think, kind of obnoxious. <laughs> but it's a fork in American culture, a really important fork in American culture, where we reject the garden and we move toward the wilderness. And wilderness is wonderful. And as an American project, I mean, I think it's our greatest contribution to world culture so far is the idea of a wilderness park. Europeans didn't come up with this idea. No one else did. The idea you would take untouched nature and draw a line around it, and we're just going to leave it that way. The founding of Yosemite and Yellowstone were really important events in world history. But now that we've saved, you know, 8% of the landmass in the United States, this idea has very little to teach us, I learned, about other landscapes where, we, where, where we're forced to engage. So it was a fateful fork, and I think he took the wrong side. So when I started gardening, that's me with those beds I told you about, uh, and look how deep I dug them, and I built these beautiful containers for them. And I had these noble ideas in my head, and there was no fence, and I wasn't prepared by Thoreau and Emerson for this. <laughs> this was the woodchuck. And I was drawn into this titanic struggle. This was the beginning of my gardening. And it escalated. And I'm not proud of this. And people who think of me as an environmental writer will perhaps be troubled by what I'm about to share with you. But it escalated into my personal horticultural Vietnam. Um, a disaster that, in retrospect, uh, set me on my course as a writer. Now, as I said, you might look at this garden and say, why is there no fence? And that's Thoreau. I mean, you know, if nature is, as the American transcendentalists and Puritans called it, God's second book, okay? Uh, uh, something you could read for instruction just the way you read the Bible. Making distinctions within that book was troublesome because it was all equally, I mean, America has this idea that we were the chosen people and this landscape was our chosen land. And so the idea of making a hierarchy within that was just, you couldn't do it. So uh, I told the story about this war in my first book, and that was Second Nature. I want to just read you a short excerpt from that. So I told you that the, um, that the, the woodchuck the first night decimated everything. I planted again. He comes back. I figured out it was a woodchuck because of the pattern of the depredations, because a deer would have been a little skittish and maybe just took a little and moved on. But the woodchuck calmly sits there and mows it down. So 
Under this many-fronted assault, it did not take long for most of my easy liberal attitudes toward the landscape to fall. I soon came to understand the distance between the naturalist, who gazes benignly on all of nature's operations, and the experienced gardener, who has developed a somewhat less sentimental view, particularly toward woodchucks. I am not ready to see them banished from the planet altogether. Surely they serve some ecological purpose, but I seriously doubt that news of some form of woodchuck megadeath in this part of the country would put me in an elegiac frame of mind. But in giving up my romantic views of the local fauna, I may have gone overboard in the opposite direction. I tried everything I could think of to eliminate my woodchuck in an escalating series of measures only a William Westmoreland could have completely understood. Only people of a certain age get that. He was, he was the lead general in Vietnam. I started out with elaborately planned campaigns of behavior modification, my send-in-a-few-advisors phase, in which I confidently deployed the accumulated wisdom of Western civilization. I had done my research and discovered that woodchucks were scrupulous about their personal hygiene. They set aside a room in their burrows to serve as a latrine, and they hate, absolutely hate, to dirty the fur on their bellies. Confident I had located my adversary's Achilles heel, I introduced a few carefully selected substances into his tunnel. A dozen eggs smashed and dribbled down its side, a pint jar of molasses, half a can of motor oil, a dead field mice, mouse, and lastly, a quart of creosote, vile stuff so sticky the woodchuck would need to have the fur on his belly steam cleaned. When this didn't work, I found, <laughs> I, I found myself attracted to less cerebral approaches. It's astonishing, actually, how much anger an animal's assault on your garden can incite. It was not as if I was liable to go hungry as a result of his depredations, after all. Now, this was no longer merely a question of vegetables or even self-interest. This was about winning. <laughs> a rifle was out of the question. I've always been terrified of guns and have never owned one. But I came up with something equally unsentimental. I found a somewhat flattened woodchuck along the highway, <laughs> scooped it into a crate, and brought it home. Then I jammed the carcass as far into the burrow as it would go. This was an act of terror, I admit. But either my woodchuck did not grasp its significance or he chose to disregard it because in two days' time, he had dug a detour around the corpse and the pillaging resumed. I decided now to incinerate the woodchuck in his burrow. I had seen an item on the news concerning cabin fires aboard jetliners. In order to test a new supposedly less combustible fuel, the FAA had simulated a cabin fire and the footage they showed of fire racing wildly through the narrow enclosed space gave me an idea of exactly the sort of end the woodchuck deserved. Take a moment to picture it. So I poured maybe a gallon of gasoline down the burrow, waited a few moments for it to fan out along the various passageways, and lit a match. Now, I didn't mention, but I was an English major, not a science major, and that, and that figures in what happened. Because a science major would have known what was going to happen, at least a physics major. Um, evidently, there was not much oxygen down there because the flame shot in the wrong direction, <laughs> up toward my face. I leapt back before I was singed too badly and watched a black-orange fountain of flames flare out of the earth and reach for the overhanging bushes. I managed to smother the fire with earth before the entire garden went up in flames. I guess this was my destroy the village in order to save it phase. So this was my, one of my first essays published. And it actually, I said earlier, set my course as a writer. I, I realized 
And I was shocked into a, you know, this is not the way to behave in nature, pouring gasoline down, you know, burrows. And there had to be a better way to grow some food. But it made me think, you know, uh, there were so many attitudes of our civilization that I was feeling and expressing this sense of entitlement and dominance of nature or attempted dominance and lack of respect for the system that I had this idea, which is, wouldn't it be interesting to do the work of a nature writer, but not do it in the wild, not go to the forest or the desert, go to the garden? And could I write a book thinking about those questions of nature in that context? And that became second nature, that there might be a different place for an American to explore our relationship to nature, an overlooked place. And I discovered, and, and I found, in fact, it was very rich. And that in a way, is still my subject as a writer. I'm very interested in the human engagement with nature, how we act in nature where we don't have that option of just locking it up and throwing away the key. Where in order to get food, get energy, entertain ourselves, we have to act. How do you act? It gets really complicated. And I discovered Wendell Berry along the way, the Kentucky poet and farmer and essayist who's a hero of mine. And in a way, he's... He's a modern Thoreau, but he's taking Thoreau into agriculture. Um, and, you know, Thoreau famously said, in wildness is the preservation of the world. And Wendell Berry added a very important corollary to that, which is, in culture is the preservation of wildness. In other words, without culture, without civilization, you won't even save, you, won't, you can't save nature. I realized I was an American nature writer of a sort, just one who didn't like to camp. <laughs> which remains true, and that I would deal with nature very close to home. And that's what I ended up doing. But I didn't know that yet. I mean, that this would be my path because my next book, I thought, was just a total departure. I wrote a book about nature in the garden. And now I'm going to write a book about architecture. And that was this book, A Place of My Own. This was an interesting, this book bombed. You probably haven't even heard of it. Um, and at the book signing today, they didn't bother getting it. <laughs> It's too bad because there's some good things about it, but it was not as successful as others. But I, I had a kind of crisis writing it. But that crisis was what allowed me to find what my ultimate issues were as a writer. So I'm going to read you a, a brief passage from the introduction I wrote on the, for the 10th anniversary edition. Because this really speaks to the, the, the second book problem, as writers sometimes call it. I have a theory that a writer's second book, which is what this one was for me, is the most difficult to write and the most revealing to read. To borrow a metaphor from geometry, a first book is like a point in the infinite space of literary possibility. It can be about anything and, can le and leads nowhere in particular. My first book, Second Nature, was ostensibly about my education as a gardener and used the gardener, garden as a place to explore the complexities of our relationship to the natural world, including the peculiar fact that we have such a relationship, what other creature does. But a writer's second book, by forming a second point in the space of literary possibility, creates a line a path or trajectory that very often sets the course of the writer's career. It's not until you embark on your second book that you begin to find out who you are as a writer. This happens in the course of discovering which of the questions that occupied you in the writing of your first book are dropped and which turn out to be the ones you can't let go of. A Place of My Own is the book where that happened for me. And looking back, I can see that in many ways it did set me on my path. When I embarked on a place of my own, I thought I was leaving behind all the questions about nature and culture that had obsessed me in second nature. Now I figured I was writing about a whole new set of questions having to do with architecture and building and work. 
After that, I presumably would turn my attention to another subject, politics, business, the internet, and then another. But as I delved into the unfamiliar world of architecture, reading all I could about theories of design and the work of construction, visiting buildings and learning how to read a plan and swing a hammer, something quite unexpected happened. I found myself drifting back to the same questions about nature and culture that had obsessed me during the writing of Second Nature. How do we humans fit into the natural world? And in what ways is that different from other creatures? Are our buildings the pure products of culture, like poems? Or are they more like adaptations, akin to a pattern of camouflage on an animal? In what ways are our buildings like nests or burrows, the outcome of a kind of evolutionary process fitting our bodies and desires to the facts of our environment? And in what way are they free to be anything we like? In other words, does nature tell us how to build? Is the prestige of right angles or the golden section in Western architecture arbitrary, or is it rooted in something important about the nature of reality? Of course, there are all sorts of other questions that come up in the process of designing a building, but these were the ones around which I kept circling. For a while, I struggled against the gravitational pull I felt dragging me back to nature, probably because in the back of every second book writer head looms this anxious injunction. You don't want to repeat yourself. That's just one of the many anxieties that don't disturb the sleep of the first book writer. This was the difficult part, and it sent me down many desolate narrative trails and up many thematically fruitless trees. But after several false starts, I came to the realization that these kinds of questions about nature were my questions, the abiding ones that fired my curiosity and fed my imagination and about which I dared to hope I might have something useful to say. So maybe I wasn't repeating myself. Maybe I was finding myself or at least finding the big questions that, for better or worse, would shape my work as a writer. I suspect that every writer has some such set of ultimate questions. And if you read their work long enough, you will find the path of their narrative or argument inevitably winding its way back to the mother issue, which might be power or money or sex, status or relationships or justice. Now I knew where my writing tended to gravitate and like to linger, the messy places where the threads of nature and culture tangle in interesting ways. The reason I've been drawn to writing about architecture in the first place was because architecture was, like gardens and agriculture and food, one of those interestingly messy places where nature changes us even as we change nature. I was home. And so anyway, a place of my own is where all this happened for me. Uh, but it was really a struggle to write and a struggle to sell. So that was a place of my own. And here, by the way, there were also really important texts that helped me and that, that, that I'd read in college. One was theory. I was reading a lot of literary theory. And, and at the moment, architecture was in the throes of literary theory. And there actually was this belief that a building was as arbitrary in its relation to nature as a poem. And you could do anything. And, and it produced a lot of really crummy architecture. And deconstruction is still playing a role in, in architecture, but much less. And Thoreau, too, who actually wrote a lot about houses in his book. So having realized all this about my big questions, I returned to the garden for my third book, and the first one to actually find an audience larger than my family and friends. This book begins again in the garden, and like all my books, with a very simple question. And this is, I think, a, a not, writing lesson number two, I would say, um, that questions are key, always more interesting than answers, and they're just more propulsive and more suspenseful. And it makes really the difference between a detective story, if you have a good question, uh, and a speech, uh, which can be pretty boring. 
So what was the question here? I refer to it as the bumblebee question. And I set it out right in the introduction, which is, I had this epiphany one day. I was planting potatoes in my garden. And it was that day when the apple trees are in bloom in, in New England in May, and uh, the bees are just having this orgy and flying around and visiting blossoms. And, and this idea occurred to me, which is, do I have anything in common with those bees? You know, the bee thinks that it's getting the best of this relationship with the flower, with the apple tree. And it's going in and stealing the nectar. And, and it has no idea that it is fundamentally being manipulated by the apple tree, which has attracted it with smell, with taste, with nectar, in order to get it to take its genes and spread them uh, around the garden, around the, around the earth. And I realized, you know, that's true for us too. These plants that we depend on, apples, and I wrote about apples and tulips, cannabis and potatoes, they're manipulating us and uh, getting us to do their bidding. And I was working for these potatoes I was planting. I was giving them new habitat. I had had them shipped from the Northwest and it totally unlocked my thinking about what was going on in nature and made me very, changed my you know, sense of respect for plants. And that's, of course, the essence of a co-evolutionary relationship. Both creatures are evolving in response to the other. And in the case of these plants, they're responding in response to our desires. So I looked at four important desires, and there were four cases. Apples for sweetness, tulips for beauty, potatoes for control, and cannabis for intoxication. And I try to use the plants as mirrors in which we could see ourselves, because in the same way that a beautiful flower, wildflower, is a precise record of what a bee finds attractive, you can learn a lot about bees' aesthetic, right? The ones that we've domesticated are a very precise record of our desires. And we can read things about ourselves in the mirror of these plants. And among the desires, just to give you an example, I looked at in Botany of Desire, and then I'm returning to in this current project, was the curious universal desire to change consciousness, to alter consciousness. The existence of which has been a very good thing indeed if you're a plant like cannabis sativa or opium somniferum or a fungus like psilocybe cubensis. One of the things plants do is drug animals for their own purposes. And not just us, by the way. Acacia trees emit a chemical that attracts ants. And once the ant starts eating this, I don't know if it's a nectar or what it is, it changes the ant's behavior. First, it addicts the ant so it can't leave. It becomes dependent on this chemical. And second, it makes the ant really aggressive. And the ant defends the acacia. So the ant has been drugged into defending the acacia. And we've just learned, in fact, and I didn't have this in the book because it, it was just discovered a couple years ago, that many plants produce caffeine in their nectar to make the bees work harder as, you know, the morning cup of coffee does, right? It focuses them and it makes them more uh, loyal to that particular kind of plant that's going to keep giving it another cup of coffee. So anyway, there's, I'm very sensitive to these manipulations going on. But the evolutionary success of these plants and fungi turns on our abiding desire to change the textures of consciousness. And I got into this whole science of cannabis, which is actually very interesting. And one of the really curious things about cannabis is that it harms our short-term memory while we're on it. And that seems, you know, like very maladaptive. But I was talking to a scientist in Israel named Raphael Meshulam 
who did some of the pioneering work on cannabis. And I said to him, why would, uh, you know, why would people do something that harmed their short-term memory? And he, uh, he pointed out that forgetting is actually very adaptive. We need to forget. We need to let go of so many things um, that we learn. And uh, the, the reason this is relevant is not, not because cannabis is the way to do this, but the, the discovery of this science taught us that we have our own cannabinoid in our bodies, a chemical that works on the same receptor networks and does exactly the same things. It's called anandamide. And it was named by Meshulam for the Sanskrit word for inner bliss. And this is a chemical involved in helping us forget. And when I asked Meshulam this, he said, well, do you want to remember every face you saw on the subway this morning? No, you want to let a lot of it go, right? So you can go on with your life. And editing memory is crucial. And, and we know that people who can't forget are tortured by the past. I mean, people with PTSD obviously can't forget. I take some comfort in this as my own memory deteriorates. But forgetting is also what allows us to experience things intensely, to immerse ourselves really, really deeply in the present, which is something that anyone with any experience of marijuana understands really well. So this is a passage from Botany of Desire. And this is getting at this idea of forgetting and, and, and how useful it is. I am not by nature one of the world's great noticers. Unless I make a conscious effort, I won't notice what color your shirt is or the song playing on the radio or whether you put one sugar in your coffee or two. When I'm working as a reporter, I have to hector myself continually to mark the details. Check shirt, two sugars, Van Morrison. Why this should be so, I have no idea, except that I am literally absent-minded, prone to be thinking about something else, something past, when I am ostensibly having a fresh experience. Almost always, my attention can't wait to beat a retreat from the here and now to the abstract, frog jumping from the data of the senses to conclusions. Actually, it's even worse than that. Very often, the conclusions or concepts come first, allowing me to dispense with the sensory data altogether or notice it only when it fits. It's a form of impatience with lived life. And though it might appear to be a symptom of an active mind, I suspect it's really a form of laziness. My lawyer father, once complimented on his ability to see ahead three or four moves in a negotiation, explained that the reason he liked to jump to conclusions was so that he could get there early and rest. <laughs> I'm the same way in my negotiations with reality. Though I suspect that what I have is only an acute sense of an attention disorder that is more or less universal. Seeing, hearing, smelling, feeling, or tasting things as they really are is always difficult, if not impossible. So we perceive each multisensory moment through a protective screen of ideas, past experiences, or expectations. And modern brain science has really borne this out. Nature always wears the colors of the spirit, Emerson wrote, by which he meant we never see the world plainly, only through the filter of prior concepts or metaphors, colors in classical rhetoric or tropes. In my case, the filter is so fine, or is it thick, that a lot of the details and textures of reality simply never get through. It's a habit of mind I sorely wish I could break, since it keeps me from enjoying the pleasures of the senses and the moment. Pleasures that, at least in the abstract, <laughs> I prize above all others. But right there, you see the problem, in the abstract. All those who write about cannabis' effects on consciousness speak of the changes in perception they experience, and specifically of an intensification of all the senses. Common foods taste better. Familiar music is suddenly sublime. Sexual touch a revelation. 
Scientists who've studied the phenomenon can find no quantifiable change in the visual, auditory, or tactile acuity of subjects high on marijuana, yet these people invariably report seeing and hearing and tasting things with a new keenness, as if with fresh eyes and ears and taste buds. You know how it goes. This italicization of experience, this seemingly virginal noticing of the sensate world. You've heard that song a thousand times before, but now you suddenly hear it in all its soul-piercing beauty, the sweet bottomless poignancy of the guitar line like a revelation. And for the first time, you can understand, really understand just what Jerry Garcia meant by every note. His unhurried, cheerful, baleful improvisation piping something very near the meaning of life directly into your mind. Or that exceptionally delicious spoonful of vanilla ice cream. Ice cream. Parting the drab curtains of the quotidian to reveal what? The heart-rendingly sweet significance of cream. Yes, bearing us all the way back to the breast. Not to mention the never-before-adequately-appreciated wonder of vanilla. How astonishing that we happen to inhabit a universe in which this quality of vanilla-ness, this bean, happens also to reside. How easily it could have been otherwise, and just where would we be? Where would chocolate be without that singular irreplaceable note, that middle C on the scale of archetypal flavors? For the first time in your journey on this planet, you were fully appreciating vanilla in all its italicized and capitalized significance. Until that is, the next epiphany comes along. Chairs. <laughs> People thinking in other languages. Carbonated water. And the one about ice cream is blown away like a leaf on the breeze of free association. Nothing is easier to make fun of than these pot-sponsored perceptions, long the broad butt of jokes about marijuana. But I'm not prepared to concede that these epiphanies are as empty or false as they usually appear in the cold light of the next day. In fact, I'm tempted to agree with Carl Sagan, who wrote a really interesting piece on marijuana before he died. He, he, he was using it to treat his cancer. Who was convinced that marijuana's morning-after problem is not a question of self-deception, this idea that the insights people have when they write them down, they read them in the morning, and they seem really stupid. There's a funny moment in William James who experimented with nitrous oxide and laughing gas and had this experience that he thought had given him the meaning of, of the universe. And he wrote it down. And in the morning, he looked at it, and it said, the smell of fried onions. <laughs> that might be the meaning of the universe. So it's not, you know, it's not a question of self-deception so much as a failure to communicate, to put these insights, this is a quote from Sagan, to put these insights in a form acceptable to the quite different self that we are when we're down the next day. We simply don't have the words to convey the force of these perceptions to our straight selves, perhaps because they are the kinds of perceptions that precede words. They may well be banal, but that doesn't mean they aren't also at the same time profound. Marijuana dissolves this apparent contradiction. By the way, I found this was similar for the psychedelics that I'm writing about now. And it does so by making us temporarily forget most of the baggage we usually bring to our perception of something like ice cream, our acquired sense of, the famili of its familiarity and banality. For what is this sense of the banality of something, if not a defense against the overwhelming, or at least whelming, power of that thing experienced freshly? Banality depends on memory, as do irony and abstraction and boredom, three other defenses the educated mind deploys against experience so that it can get through the day without being continually, exhaustingly astonished.
It is by temporarily mislaying much of what we already know or think we know that cannabis restores a kind of innocence to our perceptions of the world. And innocence in adults will always flirt with embarrassment. The cannabinoids are molecules with the power to make romantics and transcendentalists of us all. By disabling our moment-to-moment memory, which is ever pulling us off the astounding frontier of the present and throwing us back onto the mapped byways of the past, the cannabinoids open a space for something nearer to direct experience. By the grace of this forgetting, we temporarily shelve our inherited ways of looking and see things as if for the first time, so that even something as ordinary as ice cream becomes ice cream. I think I'll leave it there. So wonder, you know, depends on forgetting. Awe depends on forgetting. And there is a a chemical basis to that. We have chemicals in our brain that uh, disable memory and allow us to experience awe, and that's a great thing indeed. Now... Anybody who cultivates this messy, contested ground between nature and culture and who is interested in how other species change us and how we change them will sooner or later find his way or her way to food. As I began to at the end of Botany of Desire, the last chapter of this brought me into looking at agriculture. And that was about the potato and and our desire to control nature through industrial agriculture. And in the course of doing that, you know, there's an interesting way, and this is lesson number three, I think, um, that one book begets another, that there's usually some kernel or, or a little bit of sourdough starter at the end of a book or somewhere near the end of a book that actually will grow into your next book. It's, it's hard to find it, but it's often there. And that was true for the end of Botany Desire. And that happened, I had an, another epiphany as a result of that reporting. I found myself on a farm the likes of which I had never imagined. And rather than read you from Omnivore's Lemma, I'll just tell you about this, this epiphany. So I was doing this article, uh, this, this chapter about genetically modified potatoes, which were brand new at the time. They'd just been introduced. And Monsanto gave me wonderful access. I spent time in their labs and they wanted me to go visit one of the farms. So I went out to, they said, come see one of our customers. And, and I went out to Idaho, uh, the Magic Valley, where most of our potatoes are grown and uh, in the United States. And this is an amazing landscape. Uh, you've seen it cross, if you've crossed the country at 35,000 uh, feet. It's these green coins set into the, the brown desert. And each of those coins is 175 acres or 80 or 90 hectares. And it is kept green, obviously, by irrigation. And there's an irrigation pivot this kind of sweep secondhand, that's the, you know, the radius of the whole thing. And it goes around like this constantly, and out of it is coming water, fertilizer, and pesticides. And the farmer, oh, and this farm was 35,000 acres. It was a huge farm. And the farmer farmed from this bunker that had been built, this concrete bunker near his house. And, and he took me into this air-conditioned room, and there was every one of these circles was represented on a computer screen. And he could adjust without ever going outside the water and the fertilizer and the pesticide. And I said, this is kind of weird, farming indoors. He says, well, you know, we use some pesticides that are really toxic, and so it's much safer to do it this way. I said, what do you mean? He said, uh, well, there's this one pesticide we use called Monitor that is such a potent neurotoxin that I can't go out into the fields for three or four days after I spray it. And I don't send a field man. And even if an irrigation pivot breaks down, I don't fix it. And I give up that 175 acres of potatoes. It's a lot of potatoes. 
So I got into this catechism with him. I started asking him these questions and uh, trying to understand why you would do this. And I said, so why do, you, um, why do you use Monitor? And he said, well, it controls net necrosis. So what's net necrosis? Well, it's, that, it's a disease of potatoes. And if you've ever sliced open a potato and seen that little brown line or a couple brown spots, that's net necrosis. And I said, is it serious? And he said, no, it's purely a cosmetic defect. So why do you use this poison to treat it? He said, oh, because McDonald's won't buy any potatoes with net necrosis. And, and he explained that McDonald's buys 7 or 8% of the entire potato crop. So if, if McDonald's rejects you, you're screwed. So I said, is there any other way to control net necrosis? And he said, it was funny, this conversation, I was like pulling this thread and the entire food system kind of came with it. And he said, oh, yeah, it's not that hard to control. You just don't grow russet Burbank potatoes. It's really a problem of that, that variety of potato, the russet Burbank. Those are the, the long brown ones, classic baked potato. And I said, so why don't you grow another kind of potato? Well, McDonald's will only buy russet Burbank potatoes. And I said, why are they so hung up on that potato? And he said, it's the longest potato, and they like a very long French fry. And you know that, you know, that red box with that bouquet of long French fries that you get at McDonald's. But I realized at that moment that it's us who likes long French fries. And that without even knowing it, we're implicated in that entire chain of events leading to this guy spraying this horrible poison on his, on his plants. And that was my first inkling that there was this thing called a food system. And, and, and many things were involved and we were implicated in it. One other moment on that farm, he took me, he wanted to show me his new, he had this atmosphere-controlled storage place, and he took me to a space that is as big as that whole library building here, right? I mean, that scale, and um, it was like a stadium size. And we went in, and it was dimly lit, and there was a three-story high pile of Russet Burbank potatoes. I mean, it was a substantial pile of potatoes. I said, why are they here? Why, aren't, why don't you sell them? And he said, oh, well, you can't eat them for, for six weeks after you harvest them because they have so many systemic pesticides. They have to off-gas them like a new carpet. And I was like, wow, so that's where the French fries come from. <laughs> no idea, no idea. On the same reporting trip, I went, um, I was in California and I saw my first feedlot. And this was on uh, Route 5 in, in California. I'm driving down the Central Valley, and it's beautiful October afternoon. And in, in California, that means golden hills, these pelts of grass that are all gold, and blue sky. And I'm driving, and it's really, I'm enjoying it. I've got a convertible, and suddenly this stink assaults my nostrils. Like <laughs> this smell out of the, port of the old Port Authority men's room in New York. Um, I knew it well really nasty, but nothing had changed. I looked around and there was nothing in the landscape to explain this. I had to drive for three miles till I saw the source of this, which was the Harris Ranch feedlot. Look at the size of this, 50,000 head of cattle milling around in their own waste. And this is this place, its neighbors know this place as Cowschwitz. And there was, uh, you can't see it in this picture, but there was uh, two mountains in, that I could see in the view. The cows came right up to the the feed bunk was right along the highway. And there was a, a giant mountain of corn and another mountain of manure. And these animals were, were translating one pile into the other along the way. They're creating the flesh that became our hamburgers. And I said, wow, so that's where the hamburgers come from? 
And, you know, there it was, the whole Happy Meal, you know. Um, <laughs> and that gave me the idea, and that really set me on this path of these ultimately four books I wrote about food, which was, again, a very simple question. Where does our food come from? Most of us no longer know. 50 years ago, everybody knew, right? Everybody was a farmer or had a farmer in their family. But now, I mean, 40% of Americans were farmers around World War I. Uh, and now it's uh, less than 2%. So that became uh, The Omnivore's Dilemma, which became a, a book of detective stories about where our food comes from, tracing four different meals back to the earth. So that was my food work. And it started on the farm end and then moved to where I, I, I kind of wanted to trace food from the farm to the, um, to the plate. Uh, but then people started another, another source of ideas are your readers. And after Omnivore's Dilemma came out, readers started asking me, okay, you've told me about the environmental implications, and the, um, but what about, what should I eat for my health? And that led to In Defense of Food, which was kind of a deep dive into what we know and more importantly, what we don't know about nutrition. And that's a kind of a short polemical book. Then this book grew out of it, which is I was trying, when I realized science really can't tell us how to eat quite yet because they really don't understand nutrition very well. You know, they made a huge mistake with the, the low-fat campaign, um, which turned out to be uh, not what makes you fat and not even what leads to heart disease. But we were told that bad information for about 40 years. So I, I realized if science can't tell us how to eat, what can? And then my humanities training once again came back. Well, long before we had science to guide us in these decisions, we had culture, which is kind of a fancy word for your mom, right, when it, when it, when it comes to food. And um, that we passed down these ideas about how to eat. So I tried to come up with some food rules illustrated by Myra Kalman, uh, who's a wonderful illustrator, you know, how to, to guide people in their eating without filling their heads with talk of antioxidants. So, you know, rules like don't eat anything your great-grandmother wouldn't recognize as food. There's novelties, you know, I mean, gogurt, what, what, you know, in those tubes, you know, <laughs> portable yogurt tubes. What would your great-grandmother say about that? She wouldn't even know how to administer it to her body. Um, <laughs> don't eat breakfast cereals that change the color of the milk. <laughs> No, you can, I mean, you're on the cereal aisle and you could do one of two things. You can read the labels and try to figure out how many grams of sugar and what kind of chemicals are in it. Or you could just say, hey, yeah, that one changes the color of the milk. <laughs> That's a bad one. Eat all the junk food you want as long as you cook it yourself. This is an important rule. I mean, one of the reasons we're getting fat is that hard to make foods, uh, desserts, snacks, French fries are a great example. I mean, they're a pain to make and they're dirty and how often would you actually cook french fries yet industry can make them so so well and so cheaply that many americans eat french fries two or three times a day so if you set a rule that you're going to eat junk food but only what you cook yourself you will eat less junk food and then that led to um the end of that book i, I one of the things i learned was that people who cook without making any other changes eat a much healthier diet than people who don't and that, that landscape that I showed you the, of, the, of the potato farm or the, uh, the feedlot is really the result of our outsourcing our cooking to corporations. It's really the fast food companies that drove the industrialization of American agriculture because they needed the quantities, the uniformity, and the low price. And that, if, that we're not going to change this system unless we begin to cook again. 
and that it's a very simple solution in some ways, but it's very hard in others because of the way our lives are organized. And it's very tempting to let industry cook for us. But industry cooks very differently than humans do. And we know that. They use lots of salt, fat, and sugar. They use chemicals that no human has in their pantry. And the reason they have to use chemicals is to make the food look like it wasn't cooked long ago and far away, which is what it was. So I wanted to write a book that would inspire people to want to cook, to get back in the kitchen by showing you that this is not drudgery. This is actually really interesting. Um, So that's what Cooked was about. Now, here I am uh, foraging for psilocybin mushrooms. Um, I want to end by talking about my current project and how I got to it. Oh, yeah, something I did want to tell you because it's relevant to this is I learned along the way, and Cooked is a really good example of it. The book is about my education in the kitchen. And I'm, I apprenticed myself to a really great baker, a really good barbecue pit master, and someone who made cheese and, and um, you know, a pickler, all these different people. And I really like books where I put myself in the middle of it. I find that that, and that's a result of uh, another book that I read when I was 13, uh, George Plimpton's book, Paper Lion, where he, uh, t- he, he reinvented sports writing. Instead of being that cynical guy chomping on a cigar on the, on the sidelines, you know, who's been there, done that, um, or not done that, he decided he would play football and see what it was like. And he played in a scrimmage for the Detroit Lions. And it, and it brought this whole new dimension to sports writing because he could see it from inside, but he also had a sense of wonder that not even a football player would have because he was such a fish out of water. And so I've done that in a lot of my books. I mean, I built the building. I, um, you know, grew these things that I was writing. So, so now I'm doing one where that becomes a little more complicated. And on the advice of counsel, I'm not going to tell you about whether I'm following the Plimptonian strategy. But now you know it's not such a violent change in direction as you might think, because Botany of Desire contained the seeds of this project, the role of psychoactive plants in human history and possibly in human evolution. I'm back in the garden again, trying to figure out what these plants and mushrooms are doing to us and why, and exploring the natural history of things we don't think of as having a natural history. One of them, quite possibly, uh, is religion, which there are, you know, some serious scholars who believe that the kinds of mystical experiences that psychoactive drugs give people uh, were a a spur to the religious uh, impulse in, in humans in some places. What drew me back to this territory was news of a study uh, published in 2006 in the Journal of Psychopharmacology with a decidedly idiosyncratic title. Psilocybin, that's the name for magic mushrooms, can occasion mystical type experiences having substantial and sustained personal meaning and spiritual significance. This was the first rigorously designed, double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical study in more than four decades to study the, the effects of a psychedelic. And they found that a high dose of psilocybin could be used to safely and reliably occasion a mystical experience, which they defined as a sense, this, this cosmic sense of unity that you were out, you transcended your ego and you could connect to larger entity, whether it was the universe or nature or other people. And it has other qualities, but that's the central one. Sense of sacredness of the world and a sense that you'd experience some kind of revealed truth. And this was in volunteers who'd had no prior experience of psychedelic drugs. And that the participants ranked this experience, and this was really striking, as among the top uh, one, two, or three experiences in their life, comparable to the birth of a child or the death of a parent. 
And several of them said it was the most meaningful experience in their lives. Furthermore, that the volunteers who'd had the most complete mystical experience, and there, of course, shrinks being shrinks, there's a seven-point questionnaire to determine if you've had a mystical experience, uh, it showed significant and lasting increases in their openness to experience. And openness is one of the five personality traits that psychologists use. The others are conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. But openness is a predictor of tolerance, aesthetics, and creativity. I've never had a mystical experience. I may be spiritually retarded, I think. But suddenly I was really curious about the fact that a mushroom could have such an impact on one's personality and metaphysics. So what does this have to do with nature and food? Well, it is a mushroom. And in fact, the Aztecs called it Tio Nantical, the food of the gods. It's true, it's more of a sacramental food than a staple, but still something from nature that changes us in profound ways. And I got very curious about why. What's in it for the mushroom? Is this a defense chemical? Well, it's actually only in the fruiting body, which is not the part the, you know, mushrooms are mostly underground, and, and you don't find the chemical underground. So that was curious. And how amazing is it that a molecule circulating through the natural world would have the power to cross the blood-brain barrier, act on our serotonin receptors, and change our consciousness in radical and lasting ways? For the mushroom, this has been an evolutionary boon, allowing it to travel all, the, all over the world. They start in Mexico, but they very quickly get spread all over the world. Its habitat now includes, I learned, suburban lawns. This is in, in the United States. I don't know about here. Churchyards. They're often found on the grounds of police stations. Wonder why that is. And college campuses. And when I wrote an article about this in The New Yorker, I, was, I, I teach at Berkeley, and I was having lunch at a, at a cafe nearby, and this, this young man comes up to me and says, I saw your piece in The uh, New Yorker. I really liked it. Thanks. He walks away and comes back again. He says, you know those mushrooms are all over campus, right? <laughs> and he said, he said, look in the mulch. That was, <laughs> it was like a deep throat moment. Look in the mulch. So anyway, I decided I, there was this revival of science going on. I was very curious to learn about it. What, what is this going to teach us about the mind? And what is it going to teach us about consciousness? And I think it's going to teach us quite a bit. So I want to just as, leave you with one last passage that's from this work on this new work that I'm doing. Um, the first studies that have been done to use this in a clinical way has, have been on people with cancer diagnoses, some of them terminal. And the thinking was, and it sounds like a weird idea, I mean, I don't know that I would want to take, go on a psychedelic trip if I was faced with a terminal diagnosis, but there is a, a great deal of anxiety and depression in people in this situation. And there's very little in the pharmacopoeia to help people with this. You know, we give them tranquilizers and we give them SSRIs, but it really doesn't help. What the psychologists call existential distress or terror, really. So they began offering this to cancer patients. And at a study at NYU in New York, in the square, and another in uh, Johns Hopkins, they've given it now to about 75 cancer patients. And, and the ones that have had this mystical experience had dramatic changes in their attitude toward death. So I want to read you an account of one of those patients. His name is Patrick Metis, and he participated, and I chose this because this is an NYU story, he participated in the, the trial, the psilocybin trial in, at NYU uh, at the medical school. One of the most compelling stories I heard was from a volunteer in the psilocybin cancer trial I never got to meet. He died 
before I knew his name. However, I did get to know him slightly through the words of his wife and therapist and the remarkable pages of his journal. People who participate in this are asked to write uh, an account of their experience immediately after. Patrick Metis was a New York journalist diagnosed with the cancer of the bile ducts that had spread to his lungs. As it happens, Patrick was almost exactly my age and had first read about the psilocybin trials in the same New York Times article I did. Though he had never before taken a psychedelic, he immediately called NYU to volunteer in their psilocybin trials. The experience he had would change his life, um, the rest of his life, and his death. I first heard Patrick's story from Tony Bosis, one of the investigators in the psilocybin trials at NYU. Tony, a bearded bearish bearish psychologist in his mid-50s, had been so deeply moved by his work with Patrick that he obtained permission from his wife, Lisa, to share his story with me. In the course of four or five hours spent laying on a couch in the treatment room at NYU, wearing eye shades and listening through headphones to a specially curated playlist, Patrick underwent a journey by turns wrenching and ecstatic. In his journal, he likened the start of that journey to the launch of a space shuttle. This is a quote, a physically violent and rather clunky liftoff, which eventually gave way to the blissful serenity of weightlessness. Early on, he re-experienced the trauma of his birth, but as both mother and child. Tony's session notes say that Patrick drew his knees up to his chest, convulsed, and when it was over, began to cry softly, saying twice, birth and death is a lot of work. And then, oh God, it all makes sense now. So simple, so beautiful. Metis also took an internal tour of his body. I went into my lungs and saw two spots. They were no big deal, Metis recalled. I was being told without words not to worry about the cancer. It's minor in the scheme of things, simply an imperfection of your humanity. Then he experienced what he described as a brief death. And and having a death experience is very common in this patient group and I think has something to do with why it's uh, effective for them. I approached what appeared to be a very sharp pointed piece of stainless steel. It had a razor blade quality to it. I continued up the apex of this shiny metal object. And as I arrived, I had a choice to look or not look over the edge and into the infinite abyss, the vastness of the universe, the eye of everything, of nothing. I was hesitant, but not frightened. I wanted to go all in, but felt that if I did, I would possibly leave my body permanently, death from this life. But it was not a difficult decision. I knew there was much more for me here. Telling his guide about Tony about the decision, he explained that, quote, he was not ready to jump off and leave Lisa. That's his wife. When his wife Lisa came to pick him up after the session, and there's a lot more to it, but you can read it in the book. Patrick looked as though he'd run a marathon, but he also looked radiant. He told Lisa he had touched the face of God. Bosis himself was deeply moved by the session. You're in this room, he told me, but you're in the presence of something large. It's humbling to sit there. It's the most rewarding day of your career. Patrick lived for 17 months after his psychedelic journey, and Lisa reports he was a changed man, able to enjoy the time remaining to him free from the debilitating fear and anxiety that had plagued him before. The siege of his terror had somehow been lifted. We still had our arguments, Lisa recalls, but Patrick had a sense of patience he had never had before. And with me, he had real joy about things. She said, it was as if he had been relieved of the duty of caring about the details of life. Now it was all about being with people, enjoying his sandwich and the walk on the promenade. They lived in Brooklyn. It was as if we lived a lifetime in a year. Metis spent his good days walking around the city. 
He would walk everywhere, Lisa said, try every restaurant for lunch and tell me about all these great places he'd discovered. But his good days got fewer and fewer. In March 2012, he decided to stop chemo. He didn't want to die, she said, but I think he just decided that this is not how he wanted to live. In April, his lungs failing, Metis wound up back in the hospital. He gathered everyone together, this is Lisa speaking, and said goodbye and explained that this is how he wanted to die. He had a very conscious death. Metis's equanimity in the face of death exerted a powerful influence on everyone around him, Lisa said, and his room at the, in the palliative care unit at Mount Sinai became a center of gravity. Everyone, Lisa said, the nurses and the doctors wanted to hang out in our room. They just didn't want to leave. Um, and Tony noticed this too when he came to visit. It was like crowded with people from the hospital that they were just getting some kind of vibe off this guy. When Tony Bosis visited Metis the week before he died, he was struck by Metis's serenity. Patrick was consoling me. He said his biggest sadness was leaving his wife, but he was not afraid. It is very strange to feel something akin to envy for someone dying of cancer. But hearing Patrick's story, I realized this man had acquired that essential knowledge so few of us ever will, which is how to die with equanimity, without fear. Somehow I didn't yet completely understand the mystical experience he had in that room at NYU, courtesy of a molecule produced by a mushroom, had showed him how to die. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That's very kind. I think we have time for... Thanks a lot. We have time for a couple questions. Yeah. This question is mostly related to the story that you gave about McDonald's products. I, I know you from the Fit Up documentary. If, uh, if no one knows, Fit Up documentary is about the sugar consumption and, um, and the American products in the market and how exactly it's affecting children and people in the mass market. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, which documentary are you talking about? Fit Up. Fed up, okay. Fed up, yeah. There's you fed were, up and there's food ink. You, yeah. uh, okay, no, fed up. I was you interviewed were, and fed up. I didn't make it. Yeah. Oh, no, I know. You were yeah. just interviewed. Yeah. Um, so uh, so my, my question is, as someone who's aware and how exactly these products are getting uh, produced, especially in the U.S. market, the, the first part is, how much is politics and money is part of making the correct decisions and making the decisions to make it fine for these products to be del- to be created the way they are created. And the second part of the question is, what exactly can the communities in America uh, do to uh, fix whatever problems that are taking part in the food industry? Yeah, well, you. you're talking about food and the sale of junk food, which is marketed very aggressively. I think it's somewhere around $35 billion a year spent to market junk food to us just in the United States. And as the conversation and criticism of the industry intensifies in the U.S., the companies that sell these products, who are multinationals, are pushing them harder on the rest of the world. So you go to a place like Brazil, and there are, Nestle has schemes to sell small containers of, say, a Gogurt-like product in the favelas, and they'll sell these little containers on credit to hook people on these tastes, um, which are unfamiliar to them. And they actually have a barge that goes up the Amazon full of junk food. It's a supermarket barge bringing the taste of this food to people who've never had it. 
So there's a lot of, you know, what is it? It's capitalism, right? I mean, these products are all legal and in small quantities, they're not going to kill you or anything. It's not like they're selling cigarettes. But the market is very much wants people to stop cooking and eat processed food. And they do, and they and they they have the big microphone, thirty-five billion dollars, up against, say, the government's messages about nutrition. Just to give you an example, all the the government, U.S. government spending on nutrition information, you know, my plate and the you know the food pyramid and uh, eat less of this or that, is equivalent to a single SKU, a single product in the PepsiCo company. One junk food product spends as much on advertising as the entire government. So. We're overwhelmed. We're overwhelmed by their messages and and their politics. I mean, their ability to defeat any regulations. Although I take hope in the fact, I mean, Trump is going to further deregulate the the food industry. I think we can expect that. But at the same time, uh, we were electing Donald Trump. Five cities passed new soda tax ordinances, despite the fact the government had spent tens of millions of dollars to stop them. So... You know, there's, I mean, there's kind of a, there's a movement forming and it's consumers who are recognizing this. I think soda sales are plummeting and that's not a result of any regulation. Maybe the fact that Michelle Obama was promoting water consumption, that was her gentle way of discouraging soda consumption, helps. But I think it's all been all these battles over soda taxes that have notif- uh, informed a lot of people who never thought soda was problematic. But in fact, it's, you know, one of the biggest causes of type 2 diabetes, which is bankrupting countries, you know, and health systems all over the world. So we need a, uh, we need a political movement to uh, make people realize that these, are, these products are public health disasters and that much would be gained and much would be saved by limiting their consumption. You know, right now we have, we have a food stamp program. It's called SNAP in America. It's, it's our food assistance program where you can take those dollars you get from the government, you can buy soda and candy. And is that a good idea? It doesn't strikes me that, no. I mean, I think we should have a federal definition of food and support that and then and call all this other stuff something else. Uh, and soda would be there and candy would be there and, and we would only support the production of food or the consumption of food and then we'd tax all the other stuff. So there are things we could do, but we, we have a lot more work to do. Another question? Go. We don't have to go to America to see this. You walk into any supermarket in the United Arab Emirates and we have seven aisles. We should have a big sign on them saying, for the promotion of diabetes. <laughs> it's that simple. Yeah. Well, you know, there should be warning labels on some of these products without question. I have yet to. I'm going to go to a supermarket tomorrow. I haven't been to a supermarket here. I'm, I, I go wherever, all over the world. And our food is becoming homogenized by these companies. And it's not the good stuff that's getting homogenized. It's a, it's a, it's a global issue. And diabetes is, I think, I mean, the WHO just issued a report, really interesting report, the head of the World Health Organization, that diabetes was going to bankrupt uh, a great many health systems around the country. And it's entirely preventable. Hopefully governments will move against it strictly for their own economic self-interest. This is the easiest way to reduce healthcare spending. I don't think you realize that, or most people realize that 75% of healthcare spending is to, is to treat chronic diseases, preventable chronic diseases. And I don't know exact percent, but most of those are chronic diseases linked to diet. And that when we see these explosions in healthcare costs, we're really talking about the catastrophe of the diet. 
that's behind it. You had a question. Yes. You spoke about how you like immersing yourself in the experience and then talking about it as a learning journey. And for your new book, it feels like like you should submit yourself to <laughs> the experience in order to be able to write about that. And uh, sorry if this is kind of an uncomfortable topic, but would like would it be a, com a component of your book to speak of your own personal experience, or do you feel that is not necessary in this kind of writing? <laughs> well, that's a very good question. It's It's not necessary, and if you see, I wrote a piece about this work, these two trials, and that was in the New Yorker last early uh, last winter, called the Trip Treatment. It's online if you want to check it out, and, I, and there's a lot more about Patrick Madison, his trip, and other people's. And so, in that piece, I wrote it very much as an objective journalist, you know, without having had any experience, and I'm not that experienced with psychedelics. I, I didn't have a moment in college or anything where I was I was too afraid to use them. But I do feel for this project, it would be useful and interesting, even though the idea fills me with terror. <laughs> But I, I think my readers expect it. Would you agree? <laughs> and George Plimpton would, you know, encourage me in this direction. But it is illegal, and I have to be very careful about how I do it, unless I can get into one of these trials. The problem is that the trials now are not with... the They use certain populations, and you have to be in that population. And they're not studying what are called healthy normals anymore, which I'm proud to be a member of that population. They're studying um, people with cancer, and, and I, I don't want to go there if I don't have to. And they're studying alcoholics, and they're studying, interestingly enough, religious professionals. They're doing a study of how um, taking a psychedelic would affect their practice. But you have to have a congregation. I don't. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> And they're studying uh, long-term meditators, meditators with 10,000 hours of experience. I don't qualify for that either. So for me to do it, I would have to work with someone underground. Um, so anyway, it's very complicated, and there are a lot of legal issues, but it is my desire to do that. Uh, first of all, Mr. Pond, I'd like to uh, thank you. You've been a, an inspiration. I read your uh, book, uh, Botany of Desire, uh, when it first came out, and it heavily influenced uh, my life since then. Oh, thank you. I hope um, for the good. Especially the chapter on cannabis. Uh, uh, so maybe not. <laughs> which uh, brings me to my question to you. Uh, you mentioned the most recent election. Uh, you mentioned cities passing taxes on soda. But there's also been quite the influx of the legalization of marijuana. Yeah. And I want your opinion on that. And is that just another example of plants manipulating us humans. And uh, do you think that's going in the right direction? I just, I'm just interested in what you have to say. Thank you very much. Yeah. I've, I mean, we had, a, we had a ballot initiative in California to legalize marijuana for not just for medicinal use, but for recreational use. High, very um, carefully regulated, taxed by the government with restrictions on edibles, which are a problem for children. And, you know, a certain, I forget what the age limit is, 21, I guess, maybe 18. Uh, and I voted for that. I don't think prohibition has worked. I don't think prohibition ever works. And we have plenty of evidence. I mean, the jails are full of people, uh, you know, who are there because of marijuana crimes. And mass incarceration, which you hear about a lot, finally, really is a product of the drug war, which became a, an important tool. And we've, and we've learned that the government knew that. There's, a, there's an amazing quote from John Ehrlichman that just came out in Harper's Magazine recently, but he said it back in the... 80s or 90s to a journalist named Dan Baum. And he said, yeah, the drug war, that was all. We just needed a tool to go after the hippies and the blacks. 
because Nixon started the drug war. So it was a very cynical thing, and, and it, it didn't reduce consumption, if that was its goal. You know, I mean, all these drugs have side effects for people, and there, there is research about marijuana that would make you alarmed uh, if, you were, if you had a teenager for its, what it does to memory longer term. But in general, uh, you know, I just don't think legal prohibition works. And, and the, the states that have legalized these drugs, notably Colorado, have had a pretty positive experience. They haven't seen increases in auto accidents. They haven't, you know, had big health problems or crime problems. And as long as it's still a federal crime, you're not going to have like Philip Morris getting into the business. It's still going to be local businesses. So yeah, I, I basically think it's, it's the way to go. And I think there'll be a place for psychedelics too, by the way. I don't know that they should be legalized. I think that they're, they're um, such powerful drugs that they need to be used in a very careful context. And people do have uh, psychotic breaks and bad trips uh, when they use them without help. And they haven't had any adverse effects in these trials, but that's because they're two therapists in the room with people the whole time. And they, um, they know how to talk you through a bad trip, um, which can actually become a very, they don't even call them bad trips. They call them difficult trips or challenging trips because they can be very productive psychologically. And they have things to say. I mean, they, you know, if something really scary happens and you're having a trip and you see a demon or a monster, as, as one of the guides said, it's like, it's like confronting a mountain lion on a trail. You don't turn and run. You stand your ground. And if you stand your ground or even go to the monster and say, why are you in my head? What do you have to teach me? That you'll pass through it into a much happier place. And so they know how to, you know, they know it. They, they're called these flight instructions. Um, and they, and they've, they've mastered them. Um, so anyway, I, I don't think legalization is the answer, but I think there's some role for it in, in medicine and psychotherapy and perhaps spiritual practice as well. Hi, just one quick question about, and I don't know specifically if this has been like an accusation leveraged against your writing, but I'm sure about to a lot of writing of this sort. A lot of people say, eat consciously, take time to cook, you know, buy certain products over others. Um, in certain contexts, it's extremely expensive to do money-wise or time-wise. And so, and so a lot of people say this writing carries a lot of elitism right, in it. Right. What do you have to say about that? Um, you know, that charge has been made about the food movement since the beginning, and there's some truth to it. I mean, it, like a lot of movements, it began with some pretty affluent people. And I don't think that's an indictment of a, of a political movement necessarily if it starts that way, if it ends that way, it is. I mean, but you think of uh, women's suffrage, abolition movement, environmental movement. All these were elite movements, at least at the beginning. The food movement is becoming more democratized. You find people... And there's a food justice movement in the inner city and there's lots of organizing around food issues and there's a recognition that these companies come in and aggressively market it in the inner city in America and it's really harming people. And wages have become a very important concern of the food movement. The whole move to the $15 or $12 minimum wage has been driven to a large extent by people in the food movement because the lowest paid workers are working in the food industry. But to your other point, who can eat this way? Uh, it is more expensive, it's true, to buy organic, although you don't need to buy organic to eat more healthfully. I think some people go to this place like, well, I can't, since I can't afford organic, I'm going to stick with junk food. But, you know, conventional produce is still a big improvement over McDonald's french fries. And also, if you are willing to cook and make that commitment, it's very economical. It's the cheapest way to eat. 
you know, I mean, there have been studies. You know, if you want to eat like McDonald's, you can cook a McDonald's meal for less than McDonald's can. I think time is the big challenge for a lot of people. And that, you know, many people, especially the poor in America, are working longer hours or working two jobs. And so finding time to cook is the challenge. I think that, uh, so we have to address all this. Um, and also to, to do a lot of the things we need to do to the food system, like take these externalities like antibiotics for those cattle and pollution that those cattle produce and incorporate that in the real price of a hamburger. There was an economist who calculated that the real cost of a McDonald's quarter pounder, if you factored in the cost to the public health, the cost to the environment, is like $200. (laughs) That's what we should pay for one of those hamburgers. Now, a lot of people wouldn't be able to afford that. The the general point is that we're going to have to address wages at the same time we fix the food system. We We have to make food not cheaper necessarily, but more affordable. Because it's not like the farmers growing organic food are getting rich. They're not. They're struggling. So getting the price of that down isn't the goal. The goal is to put enough money in people's pockets that they can afford better food. So Um, I think we need to wrap up. Yes? I just got word that that's the last question. So um, Well, it was a good one. Yeah. And there is a reception um, that's going to be out you know, held outside, and there are some books that you've signed. Great. That can be... Uh, Excellent. I can answer your questions outside, too. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you, guys. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute. <laughs>